Well, hi there, and thank you for tuning in to the History of Ancient Greece podcast. In this episode, Mr. Stitt will be sharing the myth of Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt and of the moon. Her parents were Aegis-bearing Zeus, ruler of the Greek gods, and the Titanus Leto. She was born at the island of Delos in Greece. Her twin brother was Apollo, and she is usually depicted armed with a bow and arrows, wearing a knee-high heaton, which is sort of like a tunic. What's that now? Oh, sure, you're probably wondering who I am and why I'm introducing this episode. My name is Tanner. I host the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. Each episode shares a story from world culture, and each story is paired with a culture-inspired soundtrack, which we produce specifically for use in the stories we share. At the end of the podcast, we review a whiskey and make a recommendation for your home bar. We're currently in the middle of reading Charles Kingsley's 1889 classic, The Heroes, or Greek Fairy Tales for My Children, and we most recently recommended Basil Hayden's Straight Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey. So, if you enjoy stories and whiskey, stop by legendsmythsandwhiskey.com and check us out. For now, though, why don't you just focus on enjoying this episode of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 76, The Goddess of the Young. Today's episode is brought to you by our new May Patreon supporters, Emma Gals, Philip Stevens, and Helena. Once again, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce those correctly, but I do thank you for your donations and support of the podcast. If you too would like to support the History of Ancient Greece, you too can become a monthly Patreon supporter or a one-time donor at PayPal. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Artemis was one of the most widely venerated of the ancient Greek deities, and her cults were more widespread than any other Greek goddess, extending as far westward as Massilia, or modern-day Marseille, France, to the Greek colonies of Sicily and North Africa, to mainland Greece and the Aegean Islands, and finally to Ephesus on the coast of Asia Minor. Throughout her expansive geographical reach, Artemis's iconography shows herself to be a paradoxical goddess, as she is a virgin who aids women in childbirth, a fierce huntress of the wilderness, but yet she fosters wild animals, and a bloodthirsty deity who both protects the young, but yet demands their sacrifice. Standing at the borders, both conceptually and physically, between savage and civilized life, Artemis also oversees the transition of girls into womanhood, but she is also a patron of warriors. And so the young, 
who are often regarded as untamed and thus equal to the unruly natural world, are her special concern. Some scholars believe that the name of Artemis, and indeed the goddess herself, was originally of pre-Greek origin. Although her origin and etymology are unknown, the name of Artemis has sometimes been associated by scholars with the Greek verb artemeo, which means to butcher or to cut to pieces. But this isn't conclusive and by no means universally accepted. Artemis is attested in Linear B tablets at Pylos as Atemito, but she changes quite a bit over time, as archaic and classical Artemis is a composite figure with close ties to the Near East, like her brother Apollo, whose cults are regularly juxtaposed with hers. Among her antecedents, we can recognize the powerful mother goddesses of Asia Minor, a number of local Greek goddesses who presided over rites of passage, and the very important archaic figure known as Potnia Theron, or the mistress of wild animals. And her Roman equivalent is Diana. Although the Arcadians believe that Artemis was the daughter of Zeus and Demeter, as we discussed in episode 61, the prevalent legend has it that Leto was her mother. Hesiod in his Theogony says that early on in the generation of the Olympian gods, Leto was joined in love with Aegis-bearing Zeus and gave birth to Golden Apollo and Arrow-delighting Artemis, who were more beautiful than any other children in the heavens. Leto was a titaness whose iconography, in particular the veil, suggests that she was a goddess who promoted modesty in young girls, both protecting the young girl from entering into a sexual state too soon and demanding the respect of young men while at the same time provoking their curiosity. Leto was also connected to darkness, and in that regard may have stood as a symbol of the passage from the darkness, meaning the womb, into the light, meaning the world. At any rate, Hera was jealous of the union between Zeus and Leto. As is often the case, the chronology is fuzzy here, and we aren't sure if Hera was pursuing Zeus for a future marriage for herself, or if she was already his wife. Regardless, Hera dogged and harassed Leto all over the earth, denying her refuge and aid in childbirth on any part of the land. But the barren, floating island of Delos, which at that point was not attached to the ocean floor, meaning that it was not considered land yet, gave Leto refuge. The other gods, feeling sorry for Leto, convinced Eletheia, the daughter of Hera and the goddess of childbirth, to go to her aid. And so Leto gave birth to the twins Artemis and Apollo, with Artemis being born first, and then becoming her mother's midwife, and assisting Eletheia with the birth of her brother Apollo. Leto gave birth to her two children while clasping either two palm or cypress trees. The accounts vary. Regardless, both of these later became the symbol of Artemis, and came to represent the pangs of childbirth. Apollo, or perhaps Leto herself, fixed the floating island of Delos in place near the modern-day island of Mykonos and bestowed great wealth to the island. Both he and his sister enjoyed major cults there, as we shall see. This, at least, was the tradition relayed by Callimachus, a poet who lived in Hellenistic Alexandria and who wrote a hymn to Artemis. According to the much earlier Homeric hymn to Artemis, the island where Leto gave birth was Ortigia. Regardless, Delos would eventually become known as the birthplace of Artemis and Apollo, at least by the classical period, and would become a major locus of our worship, as we will discuss here shortly. The childhood of Artemis is not fully related in any surviving myths. Callimachus, though, does record that as a young girl, while sitting on the knee of her father Zeus, she asked him to grant her six wishes, to which he agreed. 
These six wishes represented major themes of Artemis's iconography. She wished to remain always a virgin, so that no man would ever touch her, to have many names, to set her apart from her brother Apollo, to be the Thesphoria, or light bringer, to have a bow and arrow, and a knee-length tunic, so that she could hunt, to have the sixty daughters of Oceanus, all nine years of age, to act as her entourage, and to have the twenty Amnicides nymphs, as handmaidens, to watch her dogs and bow while she rested. She wished for no city to be dedicated to her, but instead to rule the mountains, and for the ability to help women in the pains of childbirth. Artemis believed that she had been chosen by the fates to be a midwife, particularly since she had assisted her mother in the delivery of her twin brother Apollo. All of her companions remained virgins, and Artemis closely guarded not only theirs, but her own chastity. She also supports innocent youngsters, but crushes those who violate their oaths of purity. Her symbols included the golden bow and arrow, the hunting dog, the stag, and the moon. Callimachus tells us how Artemis spent her girlhood seeking out the things that she would need to be a huntress. How she entered the forge of the Cyclopes and bravely approached them, asking for them to make her bow and arrows, even as Oceanus' daughters were filled with fear. Callimachus then tells how Artemis visited Pan, the god of the forest, who gave her thirteen dogs that were able to hunt even lions. She then captured six golden-horned deer to pull her chariot, which itself was made out of gold. These were the deer that Heracles would have to retrieve as one of his labors. Ancient writers from Homer to Ovid consistently describe Artemis as an impressive figure, who towers head and shoulders over her companion nymphs and outstrips them in loveliness. She is energetic and carefree, which is why she is often described to be running and leaping, and the nymphs who follow her do the same. The best description of her is from the Homeric Hymn to Artemis, in which she is often called Artemis Agrotera, or Artemis of the Wild, and Potnia Theron, or Mistress of Animals, because she lives amongst the woods, mountains and streams, and not in the cities, content to pursue the wild animals with hunting dogs and her fearsome Chrysalactatos, or Golden Bow, and Eokaera, or Shooting Arrows. She knows the use of nets and snares, and sometimes, though rarely, she is shown with either a hunting or fishing spear. She mostly is shown, though, carrying her arrows on her back, with her bow in her hands. Apollonius of Rhodes tells us that the fawning wild beasts whimper in her homage and tremble in awe as she passes by. The mountains themselves quake and groan. For good reason, all of nature fears Artemis because to her alone did her father Zeus give the power to slaughter animals at will. The ancient travel writer Pausanias describes a relief that he saw at Olympia, showing the oldest representations of Artemis in archaic Greek art. She is portrayed with wings on her shoulders and gripping her leopard and a lion in her hands. In other images, she stands flanked by paired animals or birds, which she grasps firmly by their necks or tails. Another statue, described by Pausanias, that he saw elsewhere, depicted Artemis wrapped in the skin of a deer and accompanied by a hunting dog. In Greek classical art, though, she is usually portrayed as a maiden huntress, young, tall and slim, clothed in a girl's tunic, with hunting boots, a quiver, a bow, and arrows. Often she is shown in the shooting pose and is accompanied by a hunting dog or a stag. We know from other sources that the goddess also liked to fish. In fact, the temple of Artemis at Syracuse in Sicily contained a pond with large fish, sacred to the goddess, that were untouched by humans. 
Furthermore, her sanctuaries often contained wells or were built on the shores of lakes or rivers. Artemis's influence stretched over all living things, whether on the mountains, in the air, or in the water. However, although she is the goddess of the hunt, the ancients did not think of Artemis simply as a killer. She only hunts the adults, while at the same time she is the protectress and nurturer of the young. She is a goddess of game animals and takes special delight in the suckling young of every wild creature. Wild animals, particularly deer, were considered sacred to Artemis, and her sanctuary sometimes possessed sacred and untouchable herds, as in Arcadia. Another important association of Artemis is the fact that she supplanted the Titaness Selene as the goddess of the moon, a celestial body which in turn is related to a woman's menstrual cycle. In contrast, her twin brother Apollo came to be known as the sun god, himself replacing Helios. The sun gives light, whereas the moon receives light. When portrayed as a moon goddess, Artemis wore a long robe, and sometimes a veil covered her head. Her darker side is revealed in some vase paintings, where she is shown as the death-bringing goddess, whose arrows fell into young girls and women. The Artemis of cult bears only a partial resemblance to the Homeric goddess, an adolescent girl who delights in the hunt and is celebrated as the divine prototype of the virginal maiden, right for marriage. Still, hints of Artemis's cruelty and power appear in the Homeric portrait. In the Iliad, for example, Hera calls her a lion to women, pointing out that the arrows of Artemis were so dangerous that she could bring sudden death and disease to any girl or woman she wishes, though her powers depended on the will of Zeus. A mistress of the animals is a familiar sight in the shared religious iconography of Bronze Age cultures throughout the Aegean region. Although this motif occasionally appears in representations of other Greek goddesses, as we have mentioned in numerous episodes before, it is found most often among archaic votive offerings to Artemis. In societies where hunting was reduced mainly to an aristocratic pastime, the powerful deities of the hunt were not forgotten, but they were modified somewhat, and so Artemis's interest in the death-dealing potential of the hunter came to be transferred to the warrior on the battlefield. In particular, the aristocratic boys who went out on boar hunts for their rites of passage. After participating in a group killing in the wild, they arrived back into the city, having proved themselves as men, since boars are considered very dangerous and could cause physical harm with their tusks. One of the most famous boar hunts in Greek myth was that for the Caledonian boar, which Artemis had sent to destroy the city of Caledon, because their king, Oeneus, had forgotten a sacrifice to her at the harvest. Participating in the hunt was Atalanta, who Artemis had saved as an infant from dying of exposure after her father had abandoned her. She sent a female bear to suckle the baby, who was then raised by hunters. Well, it should be no surprise then that it was Atalanta that drew the first blood from the boar and was awarded this prize of its skin. She hung it in a sacred grove at Tegea as a dedication to Artemis. After the death of Oeneus' son, Meleager, Artemis turned his grieving sisters the Meleagrids, and the guinea fowl, which became one of her beloved animals. We discussed the Caledonian boar hunt and Atalanta in greater detail in episode 46. Furthermore, the widespread cult of Artemis Agrotera, found all over mainland Greece and beyond, focus often on victory in battle, a continuation of this theme of the transference of Artemis's focus by the hunters to the warriors on the battlefield. According to Xenophon, at the crucial point, when the enemy was within sight, the Spartans slaughtered a goat for Artemis Agrotera 
as was their custom, and then charged. Athenian sacrifices to Artemis Agritera were conducted by the Polemarchus, a military official, and made in conjunction with those to the war god Enyalius, who was either a byname for Ares or was a son of Ares and the Titanus Enyo. In particular, in thanks for their victory at Marathon, the Athenians annually organized a large procession to Agri, outside of the city, a pleasant spot where the young Artemis was supposed to have hunted for the very first time. Dressed in their armor, the Ephebes escorted 500 female goats annually to be sacrificed at Artemis's small classical temple on the Elysis River. The battles of Artemision and Salamis were also commemorated with festivals for Artemis, whose saving power was felt by the Athenians in their times of dire peril. Artemis's identity as a mistress of wild nature is expressed through the location of her sanctuaries, which were often in rural areas, especially near rivers or wetlands, and through her epithets and unusual sacrificial practices. In Samos, she was known as Caprophagos, or boar eater, presumably because wild boars were offered to her. As we mentioned, the wild boar appears as a sacred animal in the legends of Caledon and Aetolia, where the angry goddess once sent a huge boar to ravish the countryside. The Laphrion, or Sanctuary of Artemis Laphria in Caledon, was the most important in the district, next to Apollo's Sanctuary at Thermon. It was established in the geometric period, while the first temple of Artemis appeared at the end of the 7th century BC and was rebuilt several times. In the 5th century BC, the Caledonians added a gold and ivory statue of Artemis in her huntress garb with one breast exposed sculpted by Menikmos and Soitus of Naupactus. A second temple at the site was devoted to Apollo Latfrios, just like the Thermon Sanctuary of Apollo in Aetolia included a temple of Artemis. The remains at the site show that the sacrificial animals here included boars, deer, and horses. Pausanias' description of the later cult at nearby Petrae, where the Roman Emperor Augustus transferred it after destroying Caledon, may give us some idea of earlier practices, though we cannot be certain that there was continuity. Each spring, the people of Patrae held a grand procession to the altar, and last of all came the priestesses of Artemis and a chariot drawn by yoked deer. Creatures of all sorts, including deer, birds, bear cubs, and domesticated animals were driven into a large enclosure around the altar. A bonfire of logs within the enclosure was kindled and the fire consumed the animals alive. The offerings also included fruit from the local orchards, which suggested the animals too were considered first fruits for the goddess. This ritual has been compared to the spring fire festivals of other Indo-European cultures, including the Celtic practice of burning live animals and people in wicker enclosures. The themes of salvation in wartime and mastery over the animal world are again united with a fire festival in the Phokian cult of Artemis Elephabolus, or Shooter of Stags. The people of Phocis in central Greece long remembered a 6th century BC conflict with their neighbors to the north, the Thessalians. They told how, on the eve of this most desperate battle, the men of Phocis constructed a huge pyre and placed upon it all of their valuable possessions and images of their gods. If the battle was lost, the men guarding the pyre were to kill the Phokian women and children, place them on the pyre, light it, and then commit suicide. Much to their surprise, when the Phokians instead won the battle, they commemorated the victory during the important festival called the Elephabolia at the sanctuary of Artemis and Apollo near Hyampolis. This site, in modern Calipodi, 
held symbolic and strategic importance because it guarded the entrance into focus. In all likelihood, the festival, and certainly the sanctuary, were far older than the war with the Thessalians. Recent excavations have revealed that Calipodi is one of the extremely rare cases in which continuity of worship can arguably be demonstrated from late Mycenaean times into the geometric period. While this does not prove that Artemis was a goddess of the sanctuary in the Bronze Age, the remains of sacrificial deer from the Mycenaean levels are consistent with her title of Elephebolus. In the 9th century BC, the sanctuary is reorganized and two small temples, presumably for Artemis and Apollo, were constructed, one over the previous Mycenaean installation. These were followed by a succession of later temples, whose earlier phase was characterized by interior hearths for cooking sacrificial animals for the more conventional goats and sheep. Around 560 BC, major renovations were undertaken and the character of the offerings changed too, with a new preponderance of weapons and armor. These developments are consistent with local memories of the war with Thessaly and the development of the sanctuary as a regional place of worship and a key factor in folky and self-definition. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash G-R-E-E-C-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash Greece. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Callimachus also says that Artemis does not like to come down to the cities because she prefers to live in the outer regions, where the ground is uncultivated and unplowed. Her temples and shrines tend to be in Eskatii, or at the ends of civilization. Like Dionysus, Artemis embodies much that stands in opposition to Greek cultural ideals. She is an untamed, powerful, female deity of the wilderness, more than of the city, and her personality includes a savage element, which must be suppressed, in the making of a civilized society. Both deities are so challenging to cultural norms that they are sometimes presented as foreigners, gods who have arrived from strange and savage lands. This was the case in a number of cities, including Athens and Sparta, which attributed the founding of their Artemis cults to Orestes and his sister Iphigenia. Brauron is the most famous sanctuary of Artemis, located in Attica to the east of Athens on the seashore. For the Athenians, there was a legend behind its establishment, best told in Euripides' two plays, Iphigenia at Aulis and Iphigenia at Taurus, which we discuss in great detail in episode 53. Iphigenia was the daughter of Agamemnon, who was about to lead the Greek troops to Troy. While the huge army gathered at Aulis in Boeotia, 
Agamemnon had struck and killed a young deer, so young that normal hunting laws would forbid such a slaughter. Artemis, who protects the young animals, became angry and caused an opposing wind to blow against the Greek fleet. Since the Greeks had not yet mastered the art of sailing into the wind, there was no hope that their expedition would ever leave Aulis for Troy until the goddess was appeased in some way. As it turns out, before the winds would stop blowing against them, she demanded that Agamemnon sacrifice to her his firstborn daughter, Iphigenia, who was right at the proper age of marrying. So eager to sail to Troy, he complied with the goddess's command and ordered his daughter to come to Aulis from Mycenae on the pretext that she would be marrying Achilles. When Iphigenia came to Aulis and was led to what she thought was a wedding altar, the attendants instead pulled out a knife and pushed her onto the sacrificial altar. Now to everyone watching, it looked as if Iphigenia was killed right then and there, and maybe she was, but some mythographers and artists relate that at the last minute, Unbeknownst to anyone, Artemis substituted a deer for Iphigenia and whisked the maiden away in a mist to a place called Taurus on the Black Sea, where she was set up as a priestess of Artemis in her temple and engaged the locals in human sacrifice. Herodotus tells us of the barbarian Taroi on the shores of the Black Sea, who sacrificed strangers to a goddess they call Iphigenia or Parthenos, meaning the maiden. His account may have inspired Euripides. Anyways, years later, Orestes came to the land of the Taroi, being driven by the Furies, where he found his sister there and joyfully rescued her. He brought her back to Brauron at the command of Athena. There, she was to set up the barbarian statue of Artemis and institute a cult of the goddess, replacing the annual sacrifice and making it more benign. Iphigenia spent the rest of her life as a priestess in Artemis' temple at Brauron. This myth of Iphigenia and the establishment of her cult at Brauron may have been representative of there being human sacrifice at one point in Greece, though there is no additional evidence for this. What it does demonstrate, though, is the uncanny and savage aspect of the goddess and the belief that she desired such sacrifices. While it is unclear whether the Greeks ever actually practiced human sacrifice, the concept was deeply embedded in their culture. Instead of recognizing their own fascination with the topic, they disavowed it by giving the practice, and even the goddess herself, a barbarian origin. At Sparta, a bloody ritual was again linked to the accepted origin of the goddess's image in the land of the Taroi. As we discussed in episode 23, Spartan boys going through the agoge underwent a series of trials designed to toughen them up and to produce ideal warriors worthy of inclusion amongst the ranks of citizens. One of these tests took place at the altar of Artemis Orthea. According to our earliest source, Xenophon, it was a sort of war game between two teams, in which one team attempted to steal cheeses piled on the goddess's altar, while the other team wielded whips against them. Later sources speak of a simple test of endurance in which boys were whipped so much in order to ensure that enough blood fell on the altar, while the priestess of Artemis stood by holding the ancient statue. If the men wielding the whips were too lenient, the statue became heavier in her hands. The boys who withstood the most punishment, called bomanikai, or victors at the altar, were greatly honored. In Roman times, this ritual became a popular spectacle, and an amphitheater was built around the altar to accommodate more and more tourists, as spectators from throughout the empire would flock to Sparta to witness these beatings. 
Orthea seems to mean the upright goddess, and folk etymology derives the name from the discovery of the statue, tangled in the branches of the bush known as Agnes Castus, which held it upright. In the cult's legend, though, related by Pausanias, the strange character of the goddess was immediately manifested when the men who found her went mad. The earliest inscriptions speak of Orthea, who was probably an independent goddess, only later syncretized with Artemis. Known as the Limnaeon, or the Marsh, the sanctuary is founded in the late 8th century BC, and originally consisted of a pavement and altar located in a hollow beside the river Eurotus. An archaic temple was added and restored after a flood destroyed the original installation. The excavators found an unbroken series of votive objects from the late geometric period into the Roman times. Among these, the sanctuary is famous for its ivory and bone plaques inspired by Phoenician models, more than 100,000 lead figurines, and an array of unusual terracotta masks. Found immediately north and south of the temple, the masks are votive copies of wooden or clothed ones worn during ritual dances in the archaic period and depict a variety of stock characters, such as grotesque demons, youths, warriors, satyrs, and gorgons. But the most numerous are masks covered with wrinkled ridges that feature mouths with gapping teeth. The iconography of these rather fearsome-looking masks, based on Phoenician models, can be traced back to the male Babylonian monster Humbaba. Most modern scholars, though, think the masks represent grotesque females because an ancient source speaks of Spartan dances that were performed by males wearing female masks and clothing. Such dances, described as funny and obscene, were a regular part of the Dorian and Peloponnesian worship of Artemis, and were probably related to rites of passage. The ivories and the far cheaper molded terracotta and lead figurines included numerous images of a winged goddess, holding animals in the mistress of the animal's pose, or grasping a wreath in each hand. Initially, Artemis' favorite animal, the deer, is absent from the animals depicted, but he becomes increasingly popular during the 5th century BC, suggesting that the syncretizing of Arthea and Artemis took place at some point prior in the 6th century BC. The lead figurines, including many hoplite warriors, are characteristic of other Peloponnesian sanctuaries. Among the earliest votive offerings on site, limestone sculptures of lions and bronze double axes show that artistic motifs from the Mycenaean period were still remembered here. In many, if not most, Greek cities, adolescent girls danced for Artemis. These dances had social as well as religious functions, as they signaled a girl's readiness for marriage and made her visible to potential suitors. Also, transitions in the female life cycle, governed by Artemis, were linked to the prosperity and safety of the community as a whole. Many of Artemis' sanctuaries were located on the borders of a given polis, in lands that formed territorial boundaries. Rituals conducted safely by girls at these vulnerable sites demonstrated the strength of the polis, just as the very placement of such border sanctuaries asserted territorial claims. Likewise, a number of myths and legends draw a clear analogy between the rape of young women celebrating Artemis' festivals and the penetration of Apollos' territory by its enemies. For example, the Spartans trace the origins of their hostility towards the Messenians to such an incident. They claim that during her festival, Spartan girls were raped in the sanctuary of Artemis Limnatus, or of the Marsh, which stood on the borderlands between Laconia and Messenia, and which was disputed territory. Artemis' concern for the nature of human young overlaps with her control over the fertility of the natural world, 
Particularly in the Peloponnese, where her cults are extremely numerous, Artemis has the characteristics of a nature goddess who promotes the growth of vegetation and is to be found in green, moist places. The cult of Artemis Caryatis, or of the nut tree, was famed throughout Greece for its dancing maidens, often said to be the inspiration for the columns in maiden form, or the caryatids, that support the porch of the Athenian Erechtheion and other ancient buildings. Located on the border between Laconia and Arcadia, Caryae was sacred to Artemis and the nymphs who served as her companions. The girls of Laconia made an annual pilgrimage there to dance a traditional local dance before the goddess's statue, which in Pausanias' day stood in the open air. Here, too, the maidens were vulnerable. It was said by Pausanias that the Mycenaean general Aristomenes and his men kidnapped the daughters of their Laconian enemies from this sanctuary during the semi-mythical Second Mycenaean War. Although she is a virgin goddess, Artemis is not asexual, but fosters a constant awareness of the maturing sexuality of the community's adolescent girls. From a patriarchal perspective, the asset of female fertility is always complicated by fears of poaching by rival males, or their desire to engage in such poaching, which helps to explain the regular appearance of the rape motif in Artemis's myths and cults. And so another Peloponnesian cult, that of Artemis Alphiaei, or of the river Alpheus, at Latrinoi, incorporated a legend about the attempted rape of Artemis. Alpheus, a river god in Arcadia, and son of Oceanus and Tethys, was a passionate hunter who fell in love with Artemis, but he soon realized that everything he did to win her heart was to no avail. So finally, he decided to kidnap her during a night-long feast, because that would totally win her heart. Well, Artemis evaded him by daubing her own face and those of her nymph companions with river mud an act that probably reflects a lost ritual practice. In another version, told by Ovid in his Metamorphoses, Alpheus instead fell in love with and tried to rape one of Artemis's attendants, the nymph Arethusa. She was a daughter of Nereus, making her a Nereid. At one point, she was bathing herself in a clear stream in Arcadia, not knowing it was the river god Alpheus himself. He fell in love with her during this encounter and wanted to mate with her. But she wished to remain chaste and loyal to Artemis, so she fled his advances. After a long chase, she prayed to the goddess for protection. Artemis pitied Arethusa and attempted to save her by transforming her into a cloud. But Alpheus was persistent, and Arethusa began to perspire profusely from fear, until soon enough she changed once again. This time into a freshwater spring. Artemis, though, broke the ground, allowing Arethusa to flee from her home in Arcadia beneath the sea. But Alpheus pursued after her. He eventually caught up to her, and the two mingled in the waters under the Temple of Artemis on the island of Ortigia, near Syracuse and Sicily. Arethusa would become a patron figure of sort for the Syracusans, and her head was minted on many of their coins. As an aside, Alpheus was also the river which Heracles rerouted during his labors in order to clean the filth from the Augean stables in a single day, a task which had been presumed to be impossible. Anyways, Artemis and Alpheus shared an altar at Olympia, and the cult spread to the Dorian colony of Syracuse and Sicily, where Artemis Potamia, or of the river, was worshipped at a spring said to be the local manifestation of the river Alpheus. It was precisely this type of unwanted sexual advances that would become a typical theme in many of Artemis's myths, but because of her role as a protectress of the young during their rites of passage, it is imperative that Artemis herself remained forever chaste. She succeeds in maintaining her virginity, as no male, 
God or human, ever has the privilege of even touching her, and she even does not like it when men see her naked. In all of the major myths of Artemis, one must keep in mind the character and concerns of the goddess, as these are not just random stories. Each one illustrates her fierce devotion to certain principles that govern human life. If humans want to be happy, the Greeks thought at least that they should learn the goddess's nature through these stories and align themselves to the eternal truths that she upholds with her power. Whereas Artemis was protective and kind to the young, pure, and unmarried girls, she was unforgiving to anyone who attempted to deceive or undermine her, and she particularly enacted grave punishments amongst those who lusted for her. As a virgin, Artemis had interested many gods and men, but only one had managed to win her heart. Orion was the son of Poseidon and Euryale, a daughter of Minos, the king of Crete. He was a giant who could walk on the waves because of his father. He eventually became the hunting companion of Artemis, until he was killed by the goddess for trying to seduce her, and thus take away her virginity. In some versions, Orion tried to seduce one of Artemis' followers, and so she kills him out of jealousy. In yet another version, Artemis once loved Orion, but was tricked into killing him by her brother Apollo, who was protective of his sister's maidenhood. Orion was swimming at a distance, with just his head visible, and Apollo challenged her that she couldn't hit the object not knowing what or who it was. Well, she's a proud goddess with her bow and arrow, and so of course she took the challenge. And she's quite skillful, so she shot, hit her mark, and killed Orion, unknowingly. A fourth version has it that Gaia had sent a scorpion herself to kill Orion, because during the course of his hunting, he boasted that he could kill every beast on earth. Either way, Zeus placed the giant huntsman among the stars as the constellation of Orion, and the scorpion as the constellation of Scorpio. Another famous story in regards to a suitor for Artemis involves the giant twin sons of Poseidon, called Otis and Ephialtes, who were known collectively as the Allodi. They had grown enormously large at a young age and were aggressive, great hunters, who could not be killed unless they killed each other. The growth of the Allodi never stopped, and they boasted that as soon as they could reach the heavens, they would kidnap Artemis for Otis and Hera for Ephialtes, and take them as their wives. Their plan was to pile mountains atop one another in order to reach the Olympians. According to Homer's Iliad, they managed to kidnap Ares and hold him in a bronze jar for 13 months. He was only released when Artemis offered herself to Otis. Hera, though, did not offer herself, and so Evialtes became envious that his brother would be getting a wife, and not him. And so, as the pair fought, Artemis either sent out a deer, or changed herself into one, that jumped out between them. As the Alidae both immediately pursued the deer, they threw their spears, and so they simultaneously, and mistakenly, killed each other. Artemis was also fiercely protective of her mother Leto, and her twin brother Apollo. The famous instance of this involves Niobe, the daughter of Tantalus and a sister of Pelops. She was currently the queen of Thebes and the wife of Amphion. She had boasted of her superiority to Leto because she had 14 children, 7 boys and 7 girls, collectively known as the Niobids, while Leto had only one of each. However, 14 mortal children are not at all comparable to two divine children. So when Artemis and Apollo heard of Niobe's boastful impiety, they decided to teach her a lesson for her hubris. Apollo killed her seven sons as they practiced athletics, and Artemis shot arrows into her seven daughters, who died instantly without a sound. Apollo and Artemis used poisoned arrows to kill them, though according to some versions, two of the Niobids were spared, one boy and one girl. Amphion, at the sight of his dead sons, 
killed himself. A devastated Niobe was turned to stone by Artemis as she wept. In another myth, Zeus fell in love with Elera, a daughter of the king of Orchomenus, and hid her from Hera's jealousy by placing her deep beneath the earth. This is where she gave birth to Titius, a giant who is sometimes said to be the son of Gaia, the mother earth goddess, for this reason. It is further added that Alara died in labor because of the enormous size of her baby. Anyways, once he was fully grown, the giant Titius tried to rape Leto at the behest of Hera, and so the protective siblings killed him too. As punishment, he was stretched out on Tartarus and tortured by two vultures who fed on his liver, which grew back every night. This punishment is comparable to that of the titan Prometheus. During the Trojan War, Artemis supported the Trojan cause because of her brother Apollo, who was a patron god of the city. Although she disliked warfare, she did come to blows with Hera, when the divine allies of the Greeks and Trojans engaged each other in conflict. At one point, Hera managed to strike Artemis on the ears with her own quiver, causing the arrows to fall out. As Artemis fled, crying to Zeus, Leto gathered up the bow and arrows. At another point, Aeneas was helped by Artemis, Leto, and Apollo, who found him wounded by a Diomedes and lifted him to the heavens. There, the three of them secretly healed him in a great chamber. Arguably, the most well-known story involving Artemis's revenge against a male involves Acteon, as this was a favorite in both ancient and Renaissance depictions. The myth of this unfortunate encounter survives in many different forms. The details may vary, but they all have the same core and the same result. Divine punishment for mortal hubris. The most complete versions, though, are found in Ovid's Metamorphosis and Callimachus's Hymn to Artemis. Actaeon was the grandson of Cadmus and a cousin of Dionysus. While he was hunting with his friends and dogs, which in Greek myth often represent the male genitalia and sexual drive, he became separated from them, and so while searching for them, he came across Artemis, who was taking a bath, completely naked in a nearby spring. He stopped and stared, amazed at her ravishing beauty. Other nymphs tried to cover her up, but they were too small compared to the goddess's towering height, and so they failed. Artemis immediately flew into a rage, that a man had seen her naked, and she wished to punish him for his transgression. But since she did not have her arrows near her, she couldn't immediately get her revenge. So she forbade him from ever speaking again, in fear that he would divulge what he had seen to anyone. So Acteon took off, but when he heard the call of his hunting party, he couldn't help himself, and he yelled out for them, and he was immediately punished by being transformed into a deer. The result is that his own dogs, or symbolically, his own male sex drive, chanced upon him, and not recognizing him as their master, they tore him apart and killed him, since he saw something that he wasn't supposed to see. Other versions say that Acteon wasn't a stranger, but was a hunting companion of Artemis, who was punished because he boasted that he had once seen her naked, or that he was a better hunter than Artemis. Even other versions say that the hounds belonged to Artemis. Regardless of the details, the overall story arc makes sense if we remember that Artemis is keeping young girls sacrosanct and unviolated in their youth. It also makes sense that the character of Artemis remains at odds with the indiscriminate character of Aphrodite, who is driven by her lustful desire and the laws of attraction without regard for the proper stages of life, whereas Artemis wants sex only to be a part of adulthood and attached to a proper marriage. In Euripides' play Hippolytus, which we discussed in episode 52, Artemis' desire to nurture and protect conflicts with Aphrodite's pull on the young son of Theseus. The young boy refuses to cross over into adulthood, 
as he instead chooses to spend the rest of his life hunting, and vows to never give up his devotion to Artemis. This greatly angers Aphrodite, since she wanted him to worship her, instead, by engaging in her sexual desires. In the end, she causes a disastrous chain of events that leads to his death, the pitfalls of his refusing to move on to the next stage of life. In his play, Euripides has Artemis utter these words to the dying boy, quote, You will not be unavenged, for Aphrodite will find the angry shafts she hurled against you, for your piety and innocence will cost her dearly. I'll wait until she loves a mortal next time, and with this hand, with these unerring arrows, I'll punish him, end quote. That mortal lover turned out to be Adonis, as we discussed in episode 70. The story of Callisto is one of the best for understanding Artemis' function as a goddess of the rites of passage, especially female transitions. Callisto was a daughter of Lycaon, the king of Arcadia, and she had dedicated her life to virginity and association with Artemis. She accompanied the goddess on her hunts and spent her life in her company. But one day Zeus saw her and fell in lust with her, as he tends to do. So he disguised himself as Artemis and lured her into a sexual relationship. Callisto, although she shunned all men, didn't think there was any harm in having a relationship with Artemis herself. But through this union, and much to her surprise, she became pregnant. She tried to hide it, but once, while bathing with Artemis and the other nymphs, her offense became known to the other virgins. Realizing that she was no longer a virgin, Callisto was ashamed, and so she fled. But Artemis chased after her, until she finally trapped and slewed her. Most mythographers, though, say that Zeus had transformed Callisto into a she-bear, right before Artemis struck her, in the hope that he could conceal what was happening from his jealous wife Hera. But Hera understood the ruse and persuaded Artemis to pierce the bear with her arrow, the nymph's punishment for losing her virginity. Before she was killed, though, she gave birth to Arcus, from whom the region of Arcadia takes its name. And according to some sources, she also had another son, who would eventually become the god Pan. According to Ovid, it was actually Hera who transformed Callisto into a bear, and 16 years later, the she-bear Callisto encountered her son Arcus hunting in the forest. Just as Arcus was about to kill his own mother, Zeus pitied her and averted the tragedy by placing both mother and son amongst the stars as the constellations of Ursa Major, or the Great Bear, and Ursa Minor, or the Little Bear, respectively. Hera was enraged that her attempt at revenge had been frustrated, and so she appealed to Tethys that the two might never meet her waters, thus providing a poetic explanation for their circumpolar positions in ancient times. Essentially, these circumpolar stars never set below the horizon due to their apparent proximity to one of the celestial poles as they move in their circular paths. Circumpolar stars are therefore visible from said location toward the nearest pole for the entire night on every night of the year and would be continuously visible throughout the day too, were they not overwhelmed by the sun's glare. Anyways, this myth was sometimes depicted in classical art, but during the Renaissance it became very popular. The name Calliste, or the most beautiful, may be recognized as an epithet of the goddess herself, though none of the inscriptions at Athens that record priests of Artemis Calliste date before the 3rd century BC. Artemis Calliste was worshipped in Athens in a shrine which lay outside the Dipylon Gate by the side of the road to the academy. Scholars have suggested that Artemis Soterra and Artemis Calliste were joined in a common cult administered by a single priest. Regardless, the bear-like character of Artemis herself was an important feature of the Brauronia. Just like Artemis, children are unplowed virgins and are wild and carefree. 
In fact, Artemis actually attends childbirth, taking the baby and protecting it until the next stage of life, and her role is Artemis Lokia. But she is not the goddess of childbirth, though. That role falls to Elethea, daughter of Hera, because Artemis never crosses over and is eternally a virgin. She was worshipped as a symbol of life, moving from a wild, uncultivated childhood to a more cultivated adulthood, ruling over the rites of passage for both men and women. She protects the innocence of youth until about the age of marriage, when they pass into adulthood and relinquish their chastity to their husband. At that point, they dedicate their childhood toys in their temple as a sign that they had matured from their state of innocence. The maiden dies, the childhood ends, and the girl is stripped from her mother's protective arms and given over by the father to the husband and to the city. Men become citizens, soldiers and husbands, while women become wives, bearers of children and home managers. This act of transformation is sometimes represented or symbolized by the sacrifice of an animal, such as a deer or a bear. Both of the animals undergo major visible transformations. The deer grows antlers, and the bear emerges from the cave, that mark a new stage in their life. This imagery of the deer is what stands behind the institution of the cult of Artemis at Brauron, and the bizarre story of the sacrifice of Iphigenia, as we mentioned earlier. Another myth details how the sacrifice of a bear for Artemis came to be associated with her cult at Brauron. The bear was noted in Greek lore for both its fierceness and its maternal devotion, though presumably not commonly encountered in classical Attica. It had a long history as a sacred yet prized game animal in the prehistoric hunting cultures of Europe. At one point, a bear was tamed by Artemis and introduced to the people of Athens. They touched it and played with it until one day, a group of girls poked the bear and it attacked them. The two brothers of one of the girls killed the bear, so Artemis sent a plague in revenge. The Athenians consulted an oracle in order to learn what they must do for the plague to end. The oracle suggested that in payment for the bear's blood, no Athenian virgin should be allowed to marry until she had Arcteuin, or played the bear, for Artemis in her temple. And so Artemis was worshipped as the great she-bear, and the girls, who were required to undergo a period of ritual wildness before puberty were her images and were known as arctoi and often wore bear masks and rituals. These myths surrounding Brauron have many twists and turns, but several important elements emerge as particularly significant. The young girl who thought she was heading to a marriage is in fact sacrificed at the altar. Although no one sees it happen, a deer serves as a substitute, and after a time of separation from society and reintegration, Iphigenia becomes a priestess who guides other girls through a similar ritual of self-sacrifice, separation, and reintegration. And so girls, who are on the cusp of starting their period, and who are soon ready to marry, probably around the age of 10, came to the temple, were sequestered, and underwent the various rites of passage at a festival called the Brauronia. Playing the bear is often described as a puberty or initiation ritual that prepared the girls for the next stage of life, but clearly they were a pre-adolescent, too young to be married, even by Greek standards. Rather, the ritual has to do with Artemis' role as a goddess, who alternately nurtures and destroys the young of both humans and wild animals. By serving the goddess, these young bears appeased her and placed themselves under her protection. Many statues of young children, both boys and girls, were dedicated at Brauron. These were apparently given in thanks for the children's survival, because mortality rates were highest in the first few years of life. 
Brauron was one of the 12 ancient settlements of Attica, and one of the Attic towns were united under Athens into one polis. The state took over the Brauronia. The cult of Artemis Brauronia connected the coastal rural sanctuary at Brauron with another urban sanctuary on the Acropolis, the Brauronion, from which there was a procession every four years during the Arctea festival, which was entrusted to the Hieropoioi, were the doers of the sacred things, the same officials who ran the Panathenaic festival for Athena. The tyrant Pisistratus was Brauronian by birth, and he is credited with transferring the cult to the Acropolis, thus establishing it on the statewide rather than the local level. The wealth of archaeological artifacts documenting this festival in the form of painted vases and tablets suggests it was widely known and evidence suggests that the initiates and participants were a select few chosen from the best families to represent the entire community. And so, not every girl in Attica could serve as a bear at Brauron, though the painted cups have turned up in several other sites, suggesting that some of the Attic villages held their own version of the Brauronian festivals. It was during their time here that they were taught everything that they needed to know in order to become good citizens and wives. They had brought with them their toys and sacrificed them to Artemis, symbolizing that their old life was now over. Vases depict images of dancing to honor the goddess. The dance, also called the Arctea, was made up of slow, solemn steps meant to imitate the movements of a bear and was performed to a tune from a diolus, or double flute. The young girls also carried baskets of figs and torches around the altar and reenacted the killing of the she-bear with much symbolism, in which the girls dressed up as boys. There was another reenactment in which the girls dressed up as she-bears and the boys stabbed them with their spears, which possibly had a sexual connotation. Little is known about exactly what each stage of the ritual actually meant, but it is understood that they each symbolized a gesture of devotion to Artemis in return for her protection over the young, and guidance on their way to maturity. Early on, the participants wore actual bear skins, but by the 5th century BC, bears had become scarce in Attica, and so the skins were substituted with crocotone. These short, saffron-yellow chiton dresses were meant to symbolize the bear skins and were shed during the final ritual to symbolize the participants' maturation, as the she-bear emerges from the costume as a woman. Putting to death, one's old self held significant symbolism in antiquity. Small painted jars dedicated at the end of their service depict both clothed and naked girls. There were also race contests during this time, as shown on vases, which may be the last gasp, the carefree nature of girls. Also, it shows off the girls who were the healthiest, strongest, and most beautiful, and thus the most desirable to marry. Although it wasn't at Brauron, there's one particular myth about Helen winning a rites of passage type of foot race that ties into what we are talking about. During the time when Helen was taken from society with other young girls to be prepared for marriage, she went to the sacred Therapne Grove with its plane trees, which presumably was sort of like the Laconian version of Brauron, found just outside the city of Sparta itself. There, she outstripped everyone in beauty, swiftness, and so forth in her rites of passage, so she became the most desired woman when she returned home. Because she was so far ahead of the other young girls, a temple was eventually built at the Therapne Grove in her honor, though Pausania said that it was dedicated to Menelaus. Regardless, hero shrines to both Helen and Menelaus have been found there. Herodotus tells us an interesting anecdote about the temple. He says that once a really ugly girl was born nearby. Her mother and the nurse would often go to this temple and pray to Helen to help the girl, for no man would want her when she was ready to marry if she remained so ugly. 
One day, Helen appeared to them and touched the girl's shoulder. When she was gone, the girl miraculously turned into a beautiful woman. She immediately catches the eye of a Spartan aristocrat who marries her. And when he dies, she catches the eye of the king himself on the account of her beauty. Helen is thus the personification of the beauty that a bride needs to be marriageable. Many men try to abduct her because she has that perfect beauty at just the right time so that a man will want her. But alas, the story about the origins of the Trojan War will not be discussed here. All over the Greek world, women pray to Artemis for help with gynecological problems, childbirth, and the nurture of young children. Artemis' cult at Brauron, one of the oldest and most important in Attica, was concerned with these functions. The sanctuary, which included a temple and a dining facility, was arranged around a sacred spring and a cave-like cleft in the rocky hillside nearby. This cave-like area was appropriate for a goddess involved in childbirth, both from a symbolic standpoint and because the Cretan childbirth deity Eletheia, who is sometimes syncretized with Artemis, was also worshipped in a cave. It is possible that Iphigenia, whose name means something like strong in birth, was originally the goddess of Brauron, and that she was demoted to the status of heroine upon the arrival of Artemis. As we discussed, at least as early as Euripides' day, Iphigenia was remembered as the first priest to set Brauron, and garments of women who died in childbirth were dedicated at her supposed tomb. Excavations have failed to pinpoint the location of this tomb, but it may have been associated with a complex of structures found in the cave area. Here and in the spring, archaeologists discovered costly gifts to Artemis from the women of Attica, including gold jewelry, stone seals, scarab gems, glass beads, vases, and bronze mirrors. But the most frequently dedicated items were articles of women's clothing, such as belts, tunics, long robes, shawls, and headgear. After using the garments for a time, women gave them to the goddess, often embroidered with their own names or the words sacred to Artemis. The items were displayed in the temple in boxes and on racks, and the officials in charge of the sanctuary kept careful records of them. No trace of them exists today, but the temple inventories were carved in stone in the 4th century BC and set up both at Brauron and at the sister sanctuary on the Athenian Acropolis. These lists make it clear that women gave the best that they had to the goddess. Quote, Phidilla, a white woman's hymation in a display box. Manesso, a frog green garment. Nalsus, a lady's hymation with a broad purple border and a wave pattern around the edge. Cleo, a delicate shawl. Phile, a bordered textile. Tessacratia, a multicolored Persian-style shirt with sleeves. End quote. The list goes on and on, but you get the idea. Some of the garments were draped over the cult images of Artemis in the temple, which was first constructed in the 6th century BC and rebuilt after the Persian invasion in the 5th century BC. There were at least two statues, and possibly even three, referred to in the inventories as the old image, the stone image, and the standing statue, respectively. As many as five garments at a time were worn by these images, a practice that allowed worshippers to feel that they had achieved the closest possible contact with the goddess. The final two sanctuaries of Artemis that we will discuss today are at Delos and Ephesus, both of which put forward competing claims to be the birthplace of the goddess, though the Delian claim became more widely accepted, as we were counted earlier. At Delos, the triad of Apollo, Artemis, and Leto was worshipped from the 8th century BC onwards, and these cults, particularly that of Artemis, may have had Mycenaean antecedents there. 
One of the enduring riddles of Delian archaeology is the nature of the cache of precious objects found beneath the archaic temple of Artemis, which included Mycenaean gold ornaments, ivory pieces including plaques carved in relief, bronze arrowheads, and pot shards spanning the gap to the geometric period. The excavator suggested that these were the collected votives from a Mycenaean temple of pre-Artemis that preceded the archaic one and stood on the spot until it was replaced. Others have questioned this reconstruction of a continuous cult because there is little evidence that the island was inhabited from the 11th to 9th centuries BC. Still, the deposit suggests that the archaic temple builders wished to emphasize links to the past. Perhaps they chanced upon a long-buried hoard and piously placed the ancient treasures beneath the new temple. The richest concentrations of Mycenaean and geometric votives on Delos were found around Artemis' sanctuary, not that of Apollo, who would become the dominant deity on Delos in later centuries. Even in the classical period, the Artemision remained the spot where the most important votive offerings and heirlooms were preserved. Among these was the famous 7th century BC core, or maiden, dedicated by Nicandri to the far shooter, the oldest Greek example of a larger-than-life sized marble statue. Because the hands are pierced to hold her attributes, the statue probably represents Artemis rather than a worshipper. Its size and proportions were inspired by Egyptian art, and the temple itself was a seated image of the goddess. Hellenistic inventories of the temple's treasures record that this statue possessed an extensive wardrobe, including crowns, robes, and a necklace. Artemis' sanctuary at Delos was associated with two tombs, said to be those of maidens from the land of the Hyperboreans the legendary northern people who sent offerings to Apollo. According to Herodotus, Arge and Opus came to the island at the same time as the gods themselves. Upon their tomb, located beneath the Artemision, the Delians scattered ashes from the thigh bones burned at the altar. The maidens were the subject of ancient songs, and the Delian women had a custom of taking collections on their behalf. When excavated, their shrine turned out to be a real tomb dating to the Mycenaean period. Another pair of maidens... Hyperoke and Laodike had a monument in the Artemisium itself. Legend said that they came to bring thank offerings for the birth of Apollo and Artemis, but they died without returning home. The tale of these girls who died young formed the basis for a Delian rite of passage to adulthood, as both girls and boys cut their hair at adolescence and laid it on the tomb as a sign of mourning. For the girls, this was a prelude to marriage, as we will discuss next episode. The reason for the location of the monument in the Artemision is most definitely because Artemis herself often presided over such rites. Plutarch tells us that Artemis Euclea, or of the glory, had an altar and an image in the marketplace of every Boeotian and Locrian town, where she received offerings from couples about to be married. At Ephesus, a goddess was venerated in a particularly distinctive pre-Hellenic form. The Greek settlers who reached the Anatolian coast during the Ionian migration encountered the deities of the indigenous peoples. Most prominent among these was a mother goddess who held a dominant position in the pantheons of this region. She was worshipped under many local names and in many variations, but is best known as Kibbele, or the Great Goddess. We discussed her in great detail in episode 55. Anyways, the Greeks had a habit of assimilating all foreign gods under some form of the Olympian pantheon familiar to them, and it is clear that at Ephesus, the Greek settlers chose to recognize their own Artemis in this foreign deity, known as the Lady of Ephesus, in spite of the fact that Artemis was emphatically a virgin, not a mother. Yet, like her Anatolian counterpart, Artemis was a mountain-roving goddess and a mistress of animals. 
It is likely that the Greeks found a pre-existing cult at the site of the later Artemisian of Ephesus, because legends later attributed the founding of the cult to the native Amazons. According to Callimachus, the women warriors set up the goddess's statue beneath an oak tree and danced around it in their armor. Both Artemis's early epithet Opus and the name Ephesus itself seem to be etymological descendants of the Hittite town Apassus, which occupied the site in the Bronze Age. While there are Mycenaean and proto-geometric pot shards at the site, the earliest archaeological remains securely attributed to the cult are those of a 100-foot 8th century BC peripteral temple with a floor of hard-packed clay and a surrounding colonnade. This peripteral temple at Ephesus offers the earliest example of a peripteral type on the coast of Asia Minor, and perhaps the earliest Greek temple surrounded by colonnades anywhere. Following the local practice, though, the entrance faced west rather than east. By the following 7th century BC, there was a large altar opposite the entrance with a special base for the cult image. Presumably it was brought out of the temple to witness sacrifices at close quarters. Beside the altar was a sacred spring, perhaps the focus of the earliest cult, and the entire site was marshy and wet. In the 7th century BC, a flood destroyed the temple, depositing over a half a meter of sand and debris over the original clay floor. Among the flood debris were the remains of a carved ivory plaque of a griffin and the Tree of Life, apparently from northern Syria, as it was an important religious symbol in many cultures of the ancient Near East. These plaques probably once dressed a wooden image of Artemis, which must have been destroyed or recovered from the flood. Although the site was prone to flooding and raised by silt deposits about 2 meters between the 8th and 6th centuries BC, and a further 2.4 meters between the 6th and 4th centuries BC, scholars have argued that its continued use indicates that maintaining the identity of the actual location played an important role in the cult. And so a new temple was built in the mid-6th century BC, sponsored by the Lydian king Croesus, who had his name inscribed on one of the column drums. The Lydians by this point, if you remember from episode 15, were the overlords of Ephesus. The temple was designed and constructed by the Cretan architect Chersiphron and his son Metagenes. It was supposedly the first Greek temple built entirely of marble, and its peripteral columns stood in double rows that formed a wide ceremonial passage around the cella that housed the goddess's cult image. Beneath the archaic temple, the original excavators found a rich collection of valuable objects, including 93 Lydian coins made of electrum, the earliest known coinage, and intricately crafted items of gold, ivory, terracotta, and bronze. More recent investigations revealed a cache of jewelry contemporary with a geometric temple, including many amber beads that may have been used to adorn the cult statue. The temple became an important attraction, visited by merchants, kings, and sightseers, many of whom paid homage to Artemis in the form of jewelry and various goods. The evidence suggests that a statue of the goddess was an important element of her worship from at least the 7th century BC onwards. We know little about the earliest cold image, but a new statue was commissioned with the construction of the massive archaic temple in the 6th century BC. Literary sources tell us that the sculptor was Endoios, who made several other famous cult statues. It was made of ebony, or blackened grape wood, and was similar in appearance to the archaic statue of Hera at Samos, a rigidly frontal standing figure with legs together, swathed in a tight garment. The arms were bent at the elbows and held forward, and the goddess wore a high crown called Apollos, an attribute of Sibylle. 
This basic wooden image, probably similar than life-size, was adorned with a variety of objects. From her hands hung long knotted ribbons, she was draped with cloth garments, including a veil, and she wore fine necklaces. Eventually, she was given an elaborate chest ornament, a feature characteristic of Anatolian cult images. She was covered with globe-like objects that have been understood to represent either breasts or eggs, both symbols of fertility. However, it is unclear whether these were added in the Hellenistic period or had archaic origins. The panels of Artemis's skirt were covered with a profusion of small relief images. These were a development of early modes of ornamentation for cult statues in both the Near East and Greece, which involved fixing hammered plates of gold to the statues. Similar to Near Eastern and Egyptian deities, and not at all similar to Greek ones, her body and legs are enclosed within a tapering pillar from which her feet protrude. Ephesian Artemis, unlike her mainland counterparts, was a city goddess concerned primarily with the prosperity and safety of the Ephesians, yet her great fame encouraged the spread of her cult. When sending a colony to Massilia around 600 BC, the people of the Ionian city of Phokia were instructed by an oracle to bring with them a guide from Ephesus and a copy of the cult image. Meanwhile, an Ephesian woman named Aristarchy dreamed that the goddess stood beside her and commanded her to go with the Phokians. Strabo tells how she became the first priestess of the goddess at Massilia, where a temple was constructed and the rituals performed at Ephesus were preserved unchanged. Another example shows how the cult could be spread through private devotion. After visiting the Artemision, Xenophon decided to build a miniature copy of the temple for the goddess on his land in Skilus, near Olympia. Within it, he placed a cypress wood copy of the cult image, and every year he held a banquet in honor of Ephesian Artemis for the people living in the district. We know surprisingly very little about the rituals conducted for Artemis at Ephesus in the archaic and classical periods, as we can only make guesses based on later evidence. A 1st century BC inscription describes a sacred procession including a singer and several individuals specially chosen to carry salt, wild celery, a garment or cloth, and the cosmos, or accessories, of the goddess. A late lexicographer provides context for this inscription, telling of a ritual in which the cult image is brought down to the sea, laid on a bed of wild celery, and given a meal of salt. According to the temple legend, Clymene, the daughter of the king, once treated the goddess to this meal as a game, and she responded by demanding an annual reenactment of the ritual. Such rites focused on the dressing and feeding of cult images are not unknown in Greece, but are more often attested in Near Eastern and Egyptian sources. Another typically Anatolian feature of the Artemision, perhaps borrowed from the cult of the Great Mother, was the eunuch priest called the Megabysis, a word of Persian origin. The Athenian writer and mercenary soldier Xenophon speaks of his dealings with one of these priests, with whom he deposited money for safekeeping. The Megabysis was held in great honor among the Ephesians, though they faded away during the Hellenistic period. The Megabysis was assisted by a number of Herodules, or sacred female assistants who were young virgins. Like many other ancient sanctuaries, Thermesion was a place of asylum for fugitives and suppliants of all kinds, fleeing punishment or persecution, a tradition linked in myth to the Amazons, who twice fled there seeking the goddess's protection for punishment, first by Dionysus and later by Heracles. The inviolent aura of the sanctuary was so strong that according to legend, 
when the Ephesians came under attack by Croesus, they stretched ropes about a mile from the gates of their city to the columns of the temple. By remaining in physical contact with the sanctuary, they attempted to extend its protection to the city itself. In 356 BC, the temple was destroyed in an act of arson by a madman named Aristratus, who set fire to the wooden roof beams, seeking fame at any cost. For this outrage, the Ephesians sentenced the perpetrator to death and forbade anyone from mentioning his name, though Theopompus later noted it, which is why we know it. In Greek and Roman historical tradition, the temple's destruction coincided with the birth of Alexander the Great. Plutarch remarked that Artemis was too preoccupied with Alexander's delivery to save her burning temple. The third temple of Artemis at Ephesus took more than a century to complete, but the result would be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Although almost nothing remains of this Artemisium, except for one column reconstructed by disassociated fragments discovered on site, this monumental temple was an expression of the awesome power attributed to the goddess, the patroness of the city. The plan consisted of an unroofed central court surrounded by an outer phalanx of over a hundred columns, each nearly 60 feet tall. According to Pliny, 36 of the columns in the front had bases carved with the relief structures, a feature inherited from Hittite palace architecture, so that entering the temple was like walking through a gallery of gods and heroes. At the heart of the temple was the famous cult image, mysteriously unhellenic in appearance. When Paul of Tarsus visited Ephesus as a missionary in the first century AD, he found a thriving city that owed much of its prosperity to the popular cult of Artemis. We will talk more about this third, more famous phase of the Artemisium at Ephesus in a future episode on Hellenistic architecture. We talked about Sibylle, but another foreign goddess who the Greeks sometimes identified with Artemis was Bendis, a Thracian goddess of the moon and the hunt, and whose cult was introduced into Athens by immigrant Thracian residents by a decree of the Oracle of Dodona, which required the Athenians to grant land for a shrine or temple. A red figure Skiphos dating to around 430 BC seems to commemorate the arrival of the newly authorized cult. It shows Themis, representing traditional Athenian customs, and a booted and cloaked Bendis, who wears a Thracian foxskin cap. Though both Thracian and Athenian processions remained separate, both cult and festival became so popular that in Plato's time, its festivals were naturalized as an official ceremony of the city-state, called the Bendidea. Among the events were nighttime torch races on horseback, mentioned in Plato's Republic. The Bendidea also featured a solemn joint procession of Athenians and Thracians to the goddess's sanctuary, located at the harbor of Piraeus. A small marble votive stele of Bendis from the 4th century BC found at Piraeus shows the goddess and her worshippers in relief. The image shows that the Thracian goddess has been strongly influenced by Athenian conceptions of Artemis, as Bendis is shown wearing a short chiton like Artemis, but with an Asiatic snug-sleeved undergarment. She is wrapped in an animal skin like Artemis and has a spear, but she also has a hooded Thracian mantle, fastened with a brooch, and she wears high boots. Elsewhere in Greece, the cult of Bendis did not catch on. Strabo in the 1st century AD in his geography writes, quote, Just as in all other respects, the Athenians continue to be hospitable to things foreign, so also in their worship of the gods. For they welcomed so many of the foreign rites that they were ridiculed for it by comic writers, and among these were the Thracian and Phrygian rites, end quote. The Phrygian rites, Strabo mentioned, referred to the cult of Sibylle that was also welcomed to Athens in the 5th century BC. 
So that's Artemis, a virgin goddess who aids women in childbirth and oversees the young as they prepare for marriage and transition into adulthood. On the next episode, we will talk about the childbearing process and the dangerous early years of a child's life before splitting off and discussing the various rites of passages that a young girl and a young boy would have to go through. Finally, we will discuss what the typical educational system would look like in classical Athens, both formally and informally, for boys on their way to becoming citizen warriors. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 77, From Childbirth to Adolescence. Thank you.